0: Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch.
0: We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada.
1: Last Saturday at the University of Toronto, a special teaching was convened to probe the geopolitics of sanctions and war against Iran. On today's program, we will talk to two. The participants in that talk, Sarah Flounders of the International Action Centre, and Eve Engel a Montreal-based author and analyst of Canadian foreign policy, about the under-examined issues that may be guiding us to the next Middle East conflict.
0: First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 1st, 2012.
1: The Ottawa Citizen revealed last week that a call center with conservative party ties was hired to place calls to NDP and Liberal supporters in a Guelph riding to deliberately confuse competing party supporters. A week later, more than 30 ridings were found to be subject to the same voter suppression tactics. Both the NDP and Liberal Party allege the Conservatives orchestrated these attempts they claim amount to election fraud which includes misinforming voters about the location of their polling station and hassling voters with late-night automated phone messages. The NDP called for by-elections in ridings where the results may have been affected. The Conservatives claim they ran a quote, clean and ethical campaign, unquote, but allow for the possibility of a party rogue conducting this work. The NDP and Liberals insist this was a deliberate Planned strategy for which the Prime Minister should be held responsible. Elections Canada, aided by the RCMP, is currently investigating the calls.
0: After a significant public backlash over Bill C 30, the Internet Surveillance Act, the Conservatives are not pushing forward, at least for now. In an unusual move by the majority Conservative government, the bill will be sent to a committee for review and amendments before second reading. The Globe and Mail reports that the government is in no rush to pass the bill and that it does not have the Prime Minister's full support at this time. In response, the hacker activist group Anonymous released a video to Public Safety Minister Vic Taves last Friday, saying they will reveal another, quote, personal and political scandal, unquote, that did not appear in the previously released affidavits in the next seven days. It was also revealed this week that a Liberal Party staffer was behind the Vicky Twitter account that posted details of Minister Taves' private life. Bob Rae broke the news to a stunned House of Commons and publicly apologised to Taves. This was followed by an apology by Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird, who had falsely accused the NDP of being the WikiLeaks Twitter account author.
1: TransCanada Corporation announced this week they will spend over two billion dollars to immediately build the southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline. Their new route, which they will unveil in the coming weeks, will avoid the sand hills in Nebraska and most likely other areas that were the focus of public opposition and be resubmitted for review. Echoing the words of Prime Minister Harper shortly after denying the original project submission, TransCanada CEO Russ Gerling told The Globe and Mail, quote, I think when the project was delayed or denied, it was clearly stated the denial wasn't on the merits of the pipeline, unquote. Gerling estimated... The southern route of the pipeline would be operational next year with the entire pipeline shipping oil in 2014 or 2015.
0: A study by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development supports this week's stance by Dalton McGinty, the Premier of Ontario, who refused to back a request by Alberta's Premier, Alison Redford, to endorse the Alberta tar sands. The OECD says Canada has entered into a form of the dreaded Dutch disease, whereby the increase in exports of natural resources causes a rise in the value of the Canadian dollar, thereby hurting Ontario manufacturing.
2: The
1: vote in the EU to decide whether to label the Alberta tar sands a highly polluting fuel ended in a deadlock last week. The label is based on a system that ranks fuels according to their carbon footprint, and because Alberta's tar sands use more energy to extract and refine than conventional oil, it could be deemed highly polluting. If passed... It would make Canadian tar sands more expensive for Europeans. The European Council will vote on this question in the summer.
0: In U.S. news, late last week, United Electrical Workers ended their occupation of the Sirius Energy plant in Chicago after it was announced that they would be given 90 days to find new ownership of the plant and save their jobs. The workers, who also occupied the plant in 2008, decided to again occupy the window factory after they were informed that the owners are shutting down operations. A deal was reached by the end of the day that gives workers time to find a new buyer for the business and keep their jobs.
1: The University of California, Davis, is facing a lawsuit over the incident last fall where campus police pepper sprayed students participating in an Occupy rally. Students and alumni at UC Davis filed a complaint in U.S. District Court claiming the university violated demonstrators' constitutional rights. A video of this incident was among the footage being released during the height of the Occupy movement in the U.S. that demonstrates excessive police force against peaceful protesters.
0: NATO announced it is pulling all staff from Afghan government ministries after the Taliban claimed responsibility for killing two senior U.S. Army officers last week. The officers were killed in a highly secure command center at the Afghan Interior Ministry. The Taliban says they acted in retaliation to U.S. soldiers burning copies of the Quran, an act that sparked days of anti-American protests in the country. A recently released Amnesty International report found that as a result of the war in Afghanistan, 400 people a day are displaced, many of whom are at risk of starvation or sexual exploitation. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 1st, 2012.
1: On Saturday, March 3rd, from 12 o'clock noon to 2.30 p.m. in Toronto, come to the Transit Forum 2012, which way forward for the transit movement in Toronto. The forum will take place at the Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street. Speakers will include the Free and Accessible Transit Campaign, Jonah Shine, the NDP Urban Transport Critic, and the FAIR FAIR Coalition. For more information, contact Toronto Transit Forum 2012 at gmail.com.
0: Women are playing a crucial role in resisting a surge of mining and development aggression taking place in Canada and around the world, led by Canadian corporations. For those in Montreal, come hear some of these amazing women and echo and celebrate their voices on Sunday, March 4th, at the annual International Women's Day event. This event is organized by Women of Diverse Origins of Montreal, or WDO, an alliance of grassroots community groups, and will take place from 9 o'clock a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at 6767 Cote de Neige in Montreal. We will hear from delegations just back from the Philippines and Colombia who witnessed firsthand the impact of mining in those countries, as well as from women of Indigenous communities closer to home. Time will also be spent making banners and signs for the yearly march, which will begin at 6 o'clock p.m. on March 8th at Norman Bethune Square. There is a suggested donation at the door of $5, although no one will be turned away. Translation and daycare will be provided. For more information, email wdofdo@gmail.com.
1: The Greater Toronto Workers Assembly will be hosting a coffee house on sex worker solidarity on March fourth at two o'clock p.m. at Beit Zatun at six twelve Markham Street in Toronto. This coffeehouse discussion will address how acting in solidarity with sex worker rights organizations and supporting sex workers in their efforts to improve their working conditions and end criminalization are important in the movement towards expanding labor rights for all.
0: For those in Winnipeg, Israeli Apartheid Week will take place the week of March 5th with various events at both the University of Manitoba and University of Winnipeg campuses. For more information on specific events and for details on the numerous talks taking place that week, search for Israeli Apartheid Week 2012-Winnipeg on Facebook to locate the event page.
1: Ever since the monopoly of the Canadian Wheat Board has been rearranged, the Harper government has been drastically trying to pull Monsanto into the prairie wheat market with pressure from the United States government. Other concerned citizens are gathering to protest all around the world next month. On March 16th from a 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, Occupy Monsanto at the Monsanto Canada Incorporated head office located at 900-1 Research Road at the University of Manitoba.
0: A unique phenomenon in the U.S. and the world, Left Forum convenes the largest annual conference of a broad spectrum of left and progressive intellectuals, activists, academics, organizations, and the interested public. The conference is held each spring in New York City and will take place this year from March 16th to 18th at Pace University. This year's theme is Occupy the System, Confronting Global Capitalism. For more information, visit leftforum.org. That's all for Around the Left for this week.
1: Over the past few weeks, we've heard about the threat posed by Iran in terms of its nuclear capability. We have with us on the line Sarah Flounders, who is the co-director of the International Action Center and a keynote speech at a recent talk at the University of Toronto on the geopolitics of war and sanctions against Iran. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to be here talking. What threat does Iran pose currently in terms of its nuclear capacity?
3: Uh, that's that's really the the nub of the question because Iran poses absolutely no nuclear threat, and it's important to recognize that this has nothing nothing at all to do with Iran pursuing nuclear energy. Uh, nuclear power plants in Iran were first being built with the aid and assistance of the U.S. during the years of the Shah dictatorship, at a time when Iran was considered the bastion, the gendarme of uh, the entire region, and under complete military rule and dictatorship was in an alliance with the U.S., Uh, construction on this nuclear facility was stopped at the time of the Iranian Revolution, which the U.S. immediately, they cut off, they ended uh, all kinds of relations with Iran as this profound revolutionary upheaval became more and more apparent to them. So it has nothing to do with nuclear energy, and as a matter of fact, there were sanctions imposed on Iran for decades before Iran resumed the building of nuclear energy within Iran. Iran, as does every country on the face of the earth, have the right to develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. This is guaranteed in international law, and that is all that Iran is doing and asserting their right to do. Uh, Nuclear energy uh, is very important in all kinds of fields of science and medicine, uh, and in terms of energy. But the U.S. wants to deprive Iran of that and has made it into a nuclear threat. It's important to first recognize that nuclear energy in Iran predates uh, and was brought by the U.S., and they had no complaints about it when it was a dictator they were friendly to in complete control and power in Iran. It's only been used as an excuse to justify uh, and and an effort to create uh, an international hysteria. Iran has no nuclear weapons. They have no troops outside their own country, nor have they had hundreds of years. The U.S. has a 1,000 military bases around the world has more than 10,000 nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons. We're not talking about nuclear energy. The U.S. has nuclear weapons. Of course, Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, we could talk about, you know, the British and the French and the Russians and the Chinese and Pakistan and India. It's nuclear weapons. Iran doesn't have any nuclear weapons, nor do they have the capacity to build nuclear weapons. So this is a staged and manufactured artificial crisis. Now, the sanctions which have been imposed on Iran, there's more than 30 years of U.S. sanctions on Iran. Every effort to destabilize Iran. Sanctions are all-out war on the civilian population. They especially target the youngest, the most vulnerable, the aged, the disabled, especially the poorest, those who depend on government subsidies. It's an orchestrated effort. to to shut down the government's ability to provide for the population and to create shortages, crises, dislocation, in essential supplies. So there's been 30 years of those efforts to stop the import of all kinds of um, equipment and supplies, including Iran building pharmaceutical industry, water treatment facilities, uh, food processing plants, uh, things that had nothing to do with nuclear energy, uh, every effort made to stop uh, oil processing, uh, plant uh, oil refinery, uh, and uh, to get countries around the world to also refuse to sell Iran parts to refine their own oil to be used internally. For for years, Iran had to actually imp they would export uh, petroleum in its raw form and have to import refined oil, and gasoline. So the U.S. actually tried to stop them from refining their own oil. All of this is at a different level than the new sanctions that have been imposed, because the new sanctions on Iran are a demand that the whole world participate. Serious coming from the U.S. government. It's demanding that every country in the world participate in a blockade of Iran. Mm-hmm. And any country that refuses, any country that continues to trade, to buy and sell anything with Iran, faces a form of U.S. sanctions, a cut off of their trade relations. So it's it's a very extreme form of sanctions, demanding that every country around the world cut off their economic relations with Iran. Over over what? over nuclear weapons, which Iran does not have.
1: What about it's, other threats posed by Iran? Um, for instance, we hear about uh, support for militias like Hezbollah. Are there is there any merit to concern, non-nuclear threats posed by Iran?
3: Well, Ar- Iran certainly has relations with uh, Hezbollah and, and Lebanon, with Hamas and, uh, and Gaza, and with other formations of. Uh, and they have every right uh, against uh, Israeli attack, invasion of Lebanon, the right of the Lebanese people to defend themselves. That did come. And, and after whole parts of Lebanon were absolutely leveled, uh, Iran provided some of the money for the reconstruction in Lebanon. And that uh, was deeply felt by the people of Lebanon. So... It's it's also important to recognize what's targeted in Iran today, in a war on Iran, because the sanctions are meant to create dislocation and hardship, Uh, shortages, famines, not enough food, not enough medicine, not enough raw material, no markets. But at the same time, again and again, it's been announced that in the first day, if, if there was an actual aggressive military attack, U.S. has 10,000 targets that would be hit in the first day of a bombing of Iran. So this is another example, and we can see this from what, what the uh, Pentagon targeted in Iraq, what they targeted in Afghanistan, what they targeted in Libya, what they targeted in Yugoslavia, what they target again and again around the world is infrastructure,
4: the electrical
3: grid, refrigeration. Water, sanitation, sewage, uh, food processing plants, hospitals, schools. It's not military. These are countries that have, uh, compared to the U.S., a very small military. When you target 10,000 sites, you're really uh, attempting to uh, destroy modern development and infrastructure and create massive dislocation among the population what they did in Iraq, they called shock and awe, absolutely a determination to break the will of the people and their ability to to resist. Now, a lot of that is actually what the U.S. failure in Iraq and in Afghanistan is what is driving them to a new war. As insane as that sounds, their loss of position in the region, the loss of their ability to call the shots, The decline and decay of the U.S. empire in many ways makes them more dangerous in this period because they're seeking new ways to reassert their dominance in the region at a time when resistance has driven them out of Iraq, despite every effort, shock and awe years of occupation, putting barricades on every road, uh, and today in Afghanistan. And today in Afghanistan, the U.S. military itself admits the biggest threat comes not from the resistance, but the very soldiers that they're training, who again and again, um, at every effort, turn their guns around and shoot the very trainers uh, who are sent. It shows the depth of opposition to occupation. So there's an effort to uh, turn this situation around with a new war. And it's Uh, I think it's important to to take a page from the Occupy movement and their message about the 1%, because these wars are enormously profitable to the military oil corporations of the U.S., even when they're disasters, even when U.S. interests don't prevail, even when they're driven out. They're profitable to a tiny handful of people. Those who are sent to war, those who come home disabled, those who come home mentally uh, disabled from the war, destroyed by what they did, those who come home sick, those who come home with... And those who never come home, they pay the price. They pay the real
1: price. But the
3: profits are made by a very small handful.
1: You've touched on something kind of important, the idea of uh, the profits being made by this 1%. Is that principally what we're... We're talking about here, oil and money. Are those the the principal drivers of this uh, uh, of of what could become the next war? And uh, if that's, I mean, absolutely. if that's the case, absolutely,
3: that is yeah. what drives U.S. policy uh, with pressure all different ways, back and forth debate. What can they do? What can they get away with? Um, but it is the the dominant role in the U.S. economy today is played by oil military, and banking corporations that are linked quite together. Could Their problem me? is that the military, this, this fantastic amount of money, worth it, a trillion dollars a year, no longer bails out the U.S. economy. And that's another unsolvable problem that they face. Wars no longer uh, do what they did for 70 years uh, since since the Great Depression. The spending on militarism has has pulled the U.S. economy out again and again. It no longer does that. And as a matter of fact, now the sheer cost of it is pulling down every social program in the U.S. in terms of health care, housing, schools, all of this. The U.S. ranks behind most of the industrialized countries of the world because of the sheer amount given to the military corporations. That's a big reason, the sheer amount given to bail out the banks. Mm. They have millions of people losing their homes.
1: What do you see as the, the principal factor that may derail a possible Iran a war with Iran?
3: The principal factor that may, excuse me?
1: Oh, that, uh, like, that what might prevent the United States from going through with the war with Iran? Is there a, a principal factor that might cause them to hold, to put on the brakes?
3: Well, it's an enormous risk. And the Israeli military and the U.S. military, uh, they look at their own record, uh, their own possibilities. Iran is a a developed, uh, in many ways, economy, three times the size of Iraq. And if they couldn't carry it out in Iraq, how can they possibly expect to carry it out in Iran? Um, But wars also uh, begin... uh, in all kinds of ways, by false flag operations, by provocations intentionally set, uh, by those who stand to benefit driving it forward. Uh, it, it, may be, it may not come about because it's certainly been a threat on the drawing board for years. Uh, one of the most important factors was when uh, the U.S. declared these sanctions on the whole world, in other words, demanded every country in the world join in the blockade, of Iran refused to buy oil from Iran. Uh, both uh, Russia and China and India and Pakistan all refused to go along. The the, the primary purchasers uh, and and trade partners. I mean, the U.S. is no longer has any trade with with Iran. So what more can their sanctions do? But they were demanding the whole world participate in this and very significant economies, have flat-out refused, including where the U.S. had a real alliance in Pakistan. But Pakistan announced they're going to go right ahead with actually building a gas pipeline from Iran into Pakistan. So uh, there is a refusal on the part of many countries of the world to go along with disastrous policies that will wreck their economy, that will drive the price of oil up. And we know the dislocation that would create in Canada or in the U.S., but it's also important to keep in mind what it does with the poorest countries around the world, where the price of cooking gas and heating oil become astronomical. And it's destabilizing to quite a number of countries when oil prices shoot up to their economy, uh, to their ability to do any kind of even minimal planning. So it's... It, it, this, uh, the expectation was the very announcement of this would create such wild inflation in Iran uh, and also lead to greater uh, repression within Iran, which, which they want to do. They want to push Iran to do the most unpopular things, to lose support among their own people. It's the reason also for the U.S. and Israeli policy of targeted assassinations in Iran. Act, all kinds of acts of sabotage, targeting of uh, Iranian scientists uh, with assassination, And it's, and it's not just uh, five scientists. There's uh, 16,500 uh, Iranians who've been assassinated over the past years. Uh, these targeted assassinations, these acts of sabotage, are part of the ongoing war against Iran because Iran nationalized their oil and used it for the development of the country and for a huge subsidy in housing and educational programs for the population. And that is what U.S. corporations are determined to end.
1: Sarah Flounders, we really would like to thank you for sharing these uh, enlightening and informative perspectives with us. Thank you for being our guest on Alert. Okay, thank you. I've just been speaking with Sarah Flounders. She is the co director of the International Action Center and was a keynote speaker at last Saturday's teach in on the geopolitics of war and sanctions against Iran at the University of Toronto. So, with international powers orienting themselves around Iran, where does that leave Canada? What role is Canada playing in the emerging conflict? And what could or should Canada be doing differently? To discuss this, we're joined on the line by Eve Engler. Eve Engler is a Montreal-based author and activist who has written a number of books on Canadian foreign policy, including his most recent, Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt. Eve Engler also spoke at the recent uh, gathering at the University of Toronto. Teach in on the geopolitics of sanctions and war on Iran. So, welcome to Alert Eve. Thanks for having me. Okay, could you maybe outline for us just give us a put this Canada's uh, relationship with Iran in a historical context? I mean, what kinds of uh, what is there uh, about Canada's background there that might be coloring uh, current uh, orientation there?
5: Well, I think that uh, you want to go back uh, a ways back historically. Uh, the Canadian government uh, opposed uh, Iran's nationalization of oil in the early 50s. And uh, Lester Pearson, uh, then foreign minister, uh, basically uh, uh, condemned Iran for for moving towards nationaliza- nationalizing its oil, and uh, when uh, the British and Americans... Uh, uh, overthrew, uh, the, uh, elected, uh, President, uh, Mossade in '53. Uh, Canada had basically, basically endorsed that, uh, l- l- low level, um, complicity, uh, which included, uh, uh, participating in the, uh, oil blockade of, of, uh, uh, of Iran, um, oil boycott, should I say, of Iran, and, uh, beginning, beginning, um, uh, official diplomatic relations with Iran in nineteen fifty five, uh, just after the coup and and uh... continuing actually fairly significant um relations with Iran during the period of the Shah, uh right up until uh, nineteen seventy eight when uh, you have um the the premier of, of uh Ontario making making a visit to go see the Shah. Uh so there's a there's a history of of uh Canadian um support for anti democratic moves in Iran. Uh, opposition to uh, to nationalization of oil and and quite strong support uh, for um, uh, for the Shah during the most repressive uh, period. And then, actually, one important point of that is that the Canadian government was was willing to sell Iran, um, uh, you know, to help Iran and it drive the Shah's drive for uh, for nuclear power in in the, in the 1970s. Um, so I think that that history. Um, should inform us a little bit in terms of the the uh, the moral posturing coming from uh, from the Harper government right now on, on Iran, um, which I think is a uh, um, is not not tied to uh, the human rights question, but rather tied to the fact that Iran is not uh, seen as a, an ally of the West.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you've comment <clears throat> you've commented in, in previous publications uh, the reality about. Uh, that myth, uh, the myths that we seem to have in our national character—that uh, we're global good guys and so on—but uh, uh, and, and you've largely challenged that. So could, could you maybe, uh, in terms of the, the Iran situation and, and regionally, what are the primary factors guiding government decisions? Is it our proximity to the U.S. or is it uh, the, uh, the the corporate infrastructure within our own country?
5: I think that uh, I think that basically, with question of Iran, uh, since since, since uh, 1979, since the Iranian Revolution, uh, there's been widespread hostility from Washington, uh, primarily, but from the West in general, uh, including Canada, towards towards Iran, and there's been uh, uh, basically uh, some form of of warfare, uh, whether it's backing Saddam uh Saddam Hussein's war against Iran in the in the early eighties or much or much of the eighties, or um, the ongoing campaign of you know, bombing, uh blowing up uh, Iranian scientists. Uh I think there's there's been a, a different forms of boycott, uh um, you know, economic sort of sanctions. Um, so I think there's been a campaign and that's because Iran went in a direction that the West uh didn't like. I don't think it's it's per- principally motivated today by particular canadian corporate interests in iran i think it's more generally a a policy that is uh if you're not going to uh follow orders we're going to do what we can to to weaken you to destabilize you uh and uh, and that in the more recent time i think iran has become somewhat ironically a, a little bit more powerful uh because of what what the americans did in iraq um and uh and the sort of uh the strengthening of the of uh, of uh, the Shia in in Iraq um, which has sort of strengthened Iran's position um so that's part of what the what the uh the outrage right now is uh, vis-a-vis Iran is that Iran has um has been you know developing over the past couple decades and has been getting um, in many ways um stronger uh, and and that, that threatens uh, U.S.-Israeli um, control over the region. So I, I think that in, in the case of Iran, um, Canadian policy is largely being motivated by uh, broader opinion in, uh, in Washington, um, um, in Israel, uh, vis-à-vis uh, Iran's uh, power uh, in the region, or, 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 or the threat that Iran's power in the region is growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just additionally,
1: I mean, we've heard a lot in the news about how Canada and Israel uh, have become quite closer. They're saying that Canada is even closer friends with Israel than the United States. To what extent is that relationship with Israel uh, motivating uh, Canada's
5: policy toward Iran? Yeah, I, w- I would say that's that's certainly a significant contributor. uh... It's you know, in, in so many different ways, the Harper government. Has uh, has made this country extremely pro-Israel, and you know, there's the obvious ways that we we hear about, which is the public comments and the and the diplomatic moves. But then there's the, the less discussed, and that's the, the growing military ties, the uh, you know, the, the level even of charities and being openly uh, allowed to raise money for uh, charities in occupied territory, Israeli charities in occupied territories that are effectively uh, dispossessing Palestinians. Um, uh, The the list goes on in terms of different forms of support. One other thing I do want to add to, motivator of Canada's policy vis-à-vis Iran, is that the the dictatorships, the monarchies uh, in the Middle East, are supportive of uh, or antagonistic to to Iran. So the the Saudi monarchy, uh, uh, the other Gulf states, predominantly Sunni-led Gulf states, are uh, are hostile to Iran or are fearful of, or of Iranian power? And actually, John Baird um, was just in Kuwait in the UAE, and he talked about uh, afterwards talked about how there was uh, you know widespread support among the leadership there among the mo- monarchies there uh, to to weaken Iran. He came actually came out and said that publicly. Um, so I think that it's. It's uh, those are Canada's allies in the region. The primary, primary, primary Canadian Canadian allies in the region are is, is Israel. First of all, secondarily, um, the monarchy in Saudi Arabia. We just saw that last year, the Harper government um, okayed four billion dollars in Canadian weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. That's at the same time when Saudi Arabia um, invaded Bahrain to prop up the two hundred year dictatorship in Bahrain. Um, uh, so Canada, the Harper government. Particularly, is is close to uh, um, the most reactionary sectors in the in the Middle East. Most importantly, uh, um, Saudi Arabia, and I think that's also sort of uh, part of the uh, um, the Harper government's extreme uh, uh, hostility to Iran is that there's support for that position among the monarchy uh, in Iran or in in Saudi Arabia.
1: As I mentioned earlier, there, there is a perception out there of Canada being sort of a mediating kind of presence. Uh, in, uh, they used to say that uh, in the case of the Middle East, that, that we were an honest broker. Uh, is, is, do you sense uh, that that kind of a role might lie ahead for Canada or is in, as these hostilities and tensions increase? or? I have, I think it's
5: it's but there's no there there's no there, there was never an honest broker time and there certainly is not in the in the short to mid-term any sense of that well we we're seeing we have, we're seeing some pretty extreme um comments from our government vis-a-vis Iran so we have Harper having said that he has no doubt that Iran is um uh, getting building nuclear weapons, which is something that the U.S. government uh, internally at least said, you know, has certainly not come to that conclusion. But but further than that, Harper actually said he also believes that they're going to use those nuclear weapons, which is another way of saying he believes that the leadership in Iran are suicidal, because if Iran was to launch one single nuclear weapon, um, the place the whole country would be be obliterated by the huge um, U.S.-Israeli nuclear stockpile uh... we're also seeing you know canada sent in january sent a naval vessel to the to the, to the middle east uh, uh... not stated at the time uh, for this reason but but everyone reading between the lines knew it was sent specifically um, to to be involved off the coast of iran and there's been uh, a number of media reports about canadian naval vessels running provocative maneuvers off the coast of iran we know that uh, canadian press about a week ago reported that canadian quote-unquote military trainers uh... Um, in, in afghanistan have been uh... moved to, some of them have been moved to the border region with iran uh... so the harper government is clearly um... participating in this low-level u.s. Uh, israeli uh, um, war against iran uh, as we speak so so any sense of you know a, a re- reversing course and, and going to some sort of uh... Uh, honest broker time is 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 out of the question, and, and and you know going further with that, the the campaign that the Harper government has had vis-a-vis Iran um, at the UN in terms of focusing on Iran's human rights violations at the UN. There's reports going back to 2007 that there was a a division of labor, as the Canwest uh, article from 2007 said, that where Canada focused on Iran's human rights record, while the U.S. and uh, uh, European countries focused on uh, questions of sanctions and and, uh, and and you know nuclear nuclear questions, Canada focused on human rights record and, and you see how just repeated um, uh, denunciations by the Canadian government of iran's human rights record. You go on the foreign affairs um, press releases and they just have a uh, 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 press release after press release after press release about all kinds of specific human rights violations in Iran, most of which uh, my guess is are, are fully legitimate, um, but at the same time, when you have a more repressive, a more misogynistic, a less democratic country in in Saudi Arabia, um, the Harper government's response is to is to uh, you know send uh, four billion dollars in weapons, is to uh, actually release uh, laudatory uh, comments about uh, uh, Saudi leadership when they when they buy. Um, referring to a, a specific example back in October, um, just a, a very deferential position vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, which is a much less democratic and. Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, respectful of human rights in Iran. Uh, so I think that there's no doubt that the Harper government is um, setting uh, has participated and is setting up for future uh, Canadian um, uh, uh, war um, against uh, against Iran. Mm.
1: Would you care in the last couple of minutes, would you care to uh, comment on what you could see uh, Canada, if it was truly committed to a democracy, peace, and human rights, what, what could and should they be doing at this point?
5: Well, uh, I think that they should, they should the, the first thing would be the Canadian government should say uh, Iran has the right to nuclear energy. Um, Iran uh, it should say that we disagree, we disagree with any uh, military campaign um, against Iran i think that's uh, that's uh, you know fully fully legitimate question of nuclear energy i guess one could say that um if the canadian government was prepared to get, move away from nuclear energy in canada then they they could legitimately say that no one should have nu- no one should be using nuclear energy but that's a, that's a, that's on a bit of a side in in a short term instead of beating the war drums um, Uh, make comments towards um, some form of reconciliation, some form of, you know, pro-peace, you know, not not sending naval vessels uh, off the coast. Longer term, uh, or more broadly, I think there's all kinds of uh, policy, easy policy changes, I think, you know, supporting uh, the Arab world's move uh, for a nuclear-free Middle East. That's something that the Harper government has opposed. Uh, back in uh, September 2010, uh, and a number of occasions, has voted against uh, International Atomic Energy Agency resolutions calling for uh, uh, Israel to bring its nuclear stockpile under IAEA control. So the Can- Harper government has opposed calls for a nuclear-free Middle East because our ally in Israel has um, you know, not a possible nuclear weapons program, but has a known nuclear stockpile. Um, so there'd be, there's all kinds of very simple uh, moves in the diplomatic sphere, uh, uh, supporting initiatives that are already out there um, that the Harper government uh, could could uh, could support, and I think that would uh, that would certainly um, lead to uh, a slight improvement in in the the world's uh, uh, or the Middle Eastern um, situation. Also, even more generally, in terms of um, being willing to criticize. Uh, some of the uh, the repression in, in in neighboring countries, talking about you know uh, Saudi Arabia, most importantly about uh, just just how um, uh, repressive that country is, and and you know how that country is still supporting the uh, the opposition to the democratic movement in in Bahrain, uh, and that's a position that the Harper government has. <laughs> more or less gone along with with the Saudi position there. And and that also would, would, uh, I think, uh, go a ways into reducing uh, regional tension.
1: Well, Um, we really appreciate uh, that analysis, Eve. Uh, So thank you for sharing it with us uh, here at Alert. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Eve Engler. He is the author of a number of books on Canadian foreign policy. His most recent, Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt, is available now at bookstores.
2: Hi, this is Mitch Barolick. This is Music is the Weapon. Today we're celebrating the 100th birthday of Woody Guthrie. Well, it's always we ramble This river and I
4: All along your green valleys I work Till I die, my land I'll defend with my life, needed be. Cause my pastures of plenty must always be free. Green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground. From the Grand Coulee Dam where the waters run down Every state in this union us migrants have been Lord we come with the dust and we go with the wind your crops and it's on up north to Oregon to gather your hops dig the bead from your ground cut the grape from your vine just a place on your table that light sparkling wine Along your green valleys i work till I die My land I'll defend With my life needed be Cause my pastures of plenty Must always be free
6: Just a rambling round I work when I can get it I roam from town to town Police make it hard Boys, wherever I may go I ain't got no home In this world anymore well, I was farming shares And always I was my debts they was so many my pay wouldn't go around Drought got my crop and Mr. Banker I ain't got no home in this world anymore Six children I have raised, they're scattered and gone In my darling wife Heaven she is from. She died of the fever old. Yes, I ain't got no home in this world anymore. I mined in your minds and I gathered in your cone. I've been working, mister, since the day that I was born i worry all the time like I never did before Cause I ain't got no home in this world anymore Well now I just ramble around to see what I can see it's a wide wicked world It's a sort of funny place to me The gambling man is rich And the working man is poor I ain't got no harm this world Well, I'm stranded on this road That goes from the sea to sea Hundred thousand others 100,000 others lives I ain't got no home in this world
2: Bruce Springsteen, the boss, singing Ain't Got No Home. And before that, the Alice in band with the classic "Pastures of Plenty, The Song of the Migrant Workers. Beautiful stuff. A lot of woody stuff is, is so attached to the working class experience and culture. I'm, uh, I'm a victim of being indoctrinated by them. I've been listening to this since I was about 14 years old and all these songs I dearly love. Next, we're going to hear from Willie Nelson singing The Philadelphia Lawyer.
7: the lawyer He could hear every word that he said Your hands are so pretty and lovely Your form so rare and divine Come go with me to the city And leave this wild cowboy behind Now back in old Pennsylvania Among all the Beautiful mind there's one less Philadelphia lawyer in old Philadelphia tonight
8: if you get around me people the story I will tell about pretty boy Floyd the Outlaw Oklahoma knew him well it was in on a Saturday afternoon His wife beside me in a wagon And in the town they rode Well the deputy sheriff approached him In a manner rather rude Using vulgar words and language And his wife she overheard Pretty boy grabbed lock long tail, And the deputy grabbed his gun and He He laid that committee down. Well, he took to the hills and timber to live the life of shame. And every crime in Oklahoma was added to his name. And he took to the hills and timber on the Canadian River shore. And pretty bald found a welcome at every farmer's door. The same old story told how the outlaw paid the mortgage And saved their little homes Others tell you of a stranger that comes to beg a meal And underneath the napkin, we left a thousand dollar bill Christmas day of the whole car load of ghost rays And the letter that did say Well you say that I'm an outlaw, You say that I'm a thief while well, here's a Christmas dinner for the
6: families on the leave
8: I've seen lots of funny men Some will rob you with their six gun And some with a fountain pen But it's in this world you ramble and it's in this world you roam You won't never see no outlaw Drive a family from their home
2: Pretty Boy Floyd, and before that, Willie Nelson with the Philadelphia Lawyer. And that concludes this week's celebration of the 100th anniversary of the birth of Woody Guthrie, the people's songsmith. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. Solidarity.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert Headlines by Ben Wood, Around the Left by Ashley Titterton, Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik, with Technical Production by Andrew Valby. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.